Amen. Well, I invite you to take your copy of Scripture this morning and turn to Psalm 101. Psalm 101. And we are going to be continuing our series in the Psalms. And uh, if you're using one of the Bibles that we provide for you, you'll pay, find our passage on page 501. 501. Psalm 101. I hear a lot of pages turning, which is wonderful. Psalm 101, a psalm of David. I will sing fast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. O when will you come to me? I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Morning by morning, I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. Amen. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank You for Your Word, and especially, Lord, we thank You for the Psalms and how they instruct us and challenge us and encourage us. And Father, we pray now that You would teach us from the words of David, Lord, that we might be a people of integrity and faithfulness. And it's through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we ask it. Amen. Well, years ago, I went on a mission trip to Odessa, Ukraine, and uh, on that trip, the Lord did a good work. But one of the things that surprised me when I was there and that I remember from the trip was the widespread and very public corruption that was present throughout the government. And so I'll just give you a few examples. Uh, We encountered this corruption immediately when we offboarded the airplane. We came into the country with large boxes that were full of toys and clothes and things of that nature for orphanages that we were going to be visiting. And the custom agents at the airport threatened to deny us entry into the country if we didn't pay taxes on those boxes of toys and clothes for the orphanages. Now, thankfully, the nationals that we met there at the airport, they kind of knew this game. They knew what was going on. They knew that these taxes were made up and that the custom agents just wanted to pocket the money for themselves. And so our friends held their ground long enough, and we were eventually allowed entrance into the country without paying the taxes. One evening while we were, another example, one evening while we were eating dinner with some of our friends, several of the Ukrainians wanted to know more about politics and government in the United States. And one of their first questions were whether was whether or not our political candidates in the U.S. would assassinate their political rivals in order to ensure victory. This seemed to be fairly common in the Ukraine. Now, I know that Our political system is far from perfect, but we assured them that no, that would not be normal in the United States, that there are laws against such behavior, and there's still a general confidence that those laws would be enforced to protect political candidates. 
Another example is that while we were there, we stayed with a, a local pastor and his family. And the pastor's son was responsible for our transportation for the week or so that we were there, and he would drive us from one location to another. But repeatedly, he would alter his course. He would take back roads. He would go the long way in order to avoid police officers. Not because he had done anything wrong, but because it was widely known and accepted that police officers would routinely stop folks, charge them for crimes that they had not committed, and demand immediate payment, and then they would pocket the payment. It seemed from top to bottom that moral corruption was pervasive throughout the Ukrainian government and political class. And as a result of that corruption, it was the average citizen who suffered the most. Now, why do I share those examples, those experiences with you? Well, because Psalm 101 is a psalm about just government. It's a psalm about an upright administration. It's the psalm of a king who is committed to integrity and who is committed to surrounding himself, men and women, surrounding himself with men and women of integrity, and who is determined to build a community of integrity that is characterized by human flourishing. One commentator has said that Psalm 101 is the, quote, code of conduct for a king, end of quote. In particular, we see here that it is a psalm of David. You see it there in the title of the psalm. And Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great 19th century Baptist preacher, who I will be quoting a number of times this morning, he has this to say about the psalm, quote, This is just such a psalm as the man after God's own heart would compose. He purposes in all things to behave as become a monarch whom the Lord Himself has chosen. You see, David believed that integrity and character was absolutely essential to faithful and effective leadership. So, for example, in 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 15, we get a brief description of the early reign of King David. And there we read, So David reigned over all Israel, and David administered justice and equity to all his people. And at the end of David's life, in 2 Samuel chapter 23, verses 3 and 4, David has this to say about faithful leadership. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. And listen, my friends, this principle not only applies to kings, it's also true of officials and politicians, of business owners and employers, of workers and employees, of pastors and elders, husbands and wives, of fathers and mothers. Leadership is so very important in all spheres of life. Leadership is influence. And if we want to be a good leader, if we want to influence others for good, then we will do well to listen to David and to be a man, to be a woman of integrity. I've divided our psalm into three parts, and we'll look at each part as we walk through our psalm. First of all, we'll see a commitment to integrity in verses 1 through 3. Secondly, we will see companions of integrity in verses 3 through 7. And then third, we will see a community of integrity in verse 8. 
So a commitment to integrity, companions of integrity, and a community of integrity. First of all, look there in verses 1 through 3. We read these words. I will sing of the steadfast I will sing of steadfast love and justice to you, O Lord. I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. Oh, when will you come to me? So one of the things we see here in our text, and we'll see this throughout Psalm 101, is that folks don't drift into integrity. It takes purpose, it takes intentionality, it takes resolve. And that's what we see from David. In fact, in the ESV, the translation that I'm reading from this morning, we read ten times in Psalm 101 the words, I will, I will, I will. And we read four times the word, shall. These verbs communicate David's commitment, his resolve to be a man of integrity. For this reason, Spurgeon suggests that Psalm 101 could be entitled, A Psalm of Pious Resolutions. And notice David's personal resolutions here in verses 1 through 3. David resolves to set his mind and heart on God. He resolves to walk in integrity in his home. And he resolves to keep his eyes pure. Notice there in verses 1 and 2, he resolves to set his mind and heart on God. I will sing of the steadfast, I will sing of steadfast love and justice. To you, O Lord, I will make music. I will ponder the way that is blameless. O when will you come to me? You see, some assume that steadfast love and justice are opposed to one another. How can you be both loving and just? But that's not true. It is love for God and love for neighbor that demands a commitment to justice. And God's dealings with us are characterized by both love and justice. Listen again to these words from Charles Spurgeon. This is so beautiful. He writes, quote, We ought as much to bless the Lord for the judgment with which He chastises our sin as for the mercy with which He forgives it. There is as much love in the blows of his hand as in the kisses of his mouth. Upon a retrospect of their lives, instructed saints scarcely know which to be most grateful for, the comforts which which have cheered them or the afflictions which have purged them. God is a God of both love and justice. And even in His dealings with us, it is a perfect mixture of love and justice. David declares here that he will sing of the steadfast love and justice of the Lord. That he will make music. That he will ponder the way that is blameless. So David is resolved to sing, to ponder, to meditate on the steadfast love and justice of the Lord. And in so doing, David determines that his own leadership and his own administration will be characterized by God's love and by his justice. David's commitment here to love and justice reminds us of the words of the prophet Micah. In Micah chapter 6, verse 8, He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. You see, some leaders are more naturally inclined to be strict and harsh. That is, to be just. And others are more naturally inclined to be lenient and soft 
to be gracious and loving. But as we come to know God more, as we sing of His character, as we ponder and meditate on His ways, we will grow in both truth and grace. And like the God we worship, we will increasingly harmoniously reflect the seemingly contradictory virtues of love and justice. So David is resolved to set his mind and his heart on God. David also, you see here in the text, is resolved to walk in integrity in his home. You see it there in verse 2. The second part of verse 2. I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. It has been said that character is what we are when no one else is looking. And that's why integrity begins at home. You know, there is a real temptation to present ourselves as men and women of integrity at church or at our school or at work or in the community and to be the opposite at home. And instinctively, we all know why David starts here with his home. Because it's when we are alone, when we are with those that we love the most, when we are at most ease and at most comfort, that we, our true self is revealed. Sadly, it is here that we can do the most damage. But conversely, it is here that we can do the most good. I know I've already quoted Spurgeon several times, so I'm going to quote him again. This is so convicting. He says, quote, Reader, how fares it with your family? Do you sing in the choir and sin in the chamber? Are you a saint abroad and a devil at home? For shame, what we are at home, that we are indeed. He cannot be a good king whose palace is the haunt of vice. Nor he a true saint whose habitation is a scene of strife. Nor he a faithful minister whose household dreads his appearance at the fireside. End of quote. Godliness starts at home. And David is resolved. I will walk with integrity of heart within my house. Notice here, David is resolved to set his mind and his heart on God. He's resolved to walk with integrity in his house. He's also resolved to keep his eyes pure. You see it there in verse 3. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Now here, David's words remind us of the words of righteous Job in Job 31 verse 1, where Job declares, I have made a covenant with my eyes. How then could I gaze at a virgin? Or it could be translated, how then could I gaze at a young woman? The message translates Job 31 verse 1 this way, I made a solemn pact with myself never to undress a girl with my eyes. Satan entices and he entraps us through our eyes. That's the way Satan got to Eve, right? He enticed her and he trapped her through her eyes. We read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes. And then we read further in the narrative that she saw and she took and she ate. This is why Jesus declares in Matthew chapter 6, verse 22 and 23, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. 
If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. So what are you setting before your eyes? Is it images of lust and perversity? Is it fantasies of illicit romance and sensuality? Is it the lifestyle of the rich and the famous that fuels constant discontentment and greed and selfishness? What are you setting before your eyes? Because what you set before your eyes will eventually influence who you become. And David is resolved. I will not set before my eyes anything that is worthless. Jonathan Edwards Christian pastor who lived in the 18th century. He was also a theologian and a missionary for a short time. He served as the president of Yale University. And as a young man, Edwards committed to 70 resolutions, to following 70 resolutions to honor the Lord with his life. You can access these resolutions easily online, and I'd encourage you when you have the time to take a look at them and read them for yourself. The preface to his resolutions reads, quote, Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat Him by His grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to His will for Christ's sake, end of quote. Resolution 1 reads, I will do whatever I think will be most to God's glory and my own good profit and pleasure for as long as I live. Resolution 17 reads, I will live in such a way as I will wish I had done when I come to die. Resolution 28 reads, To study the Scriptures so steadily and so constantly and so frequently that it becomes evident, even obvious to myself, that my knowledge of them has grown. You see, Edwards, like David, understood that no one just drifts towards integrity and faithfulness and character. But rather, it requires commitment and resolve. You see, faithful leadership, faithful ministry, it begins with us. It begins with our own minds and our own hearts. And so what are you singing? What are you pondering? What are you meditating on? How do you act at home? What are you putting before your eyes? These things will determine who you are. And who you are will determine your ability to lead and to serve well. Notice secondly, we see first of all a commitment to integrity. But notice secondly in our text, we see companions of integrity. Companions of integrity. This is found in the second part of verse 3 through verse 7. So look there in the second part of verse 3 we read, I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. I will look with favor on the faithful in the land that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes." So notice that David, having committed himself to a life of integrity, David now determines to surround himself with companions, with friends, with partners who share his commitment to steadfast love and justice. You see, David recognizes that in his life and in his leadership, a commitment to integrity is vital. We saw that in the opening verses. 
But that commitment will only get him so far. The faithfulness and effectiveness of his reign will largely be determined by his choice of friends and his choice of associates who will serve him in his administration. David's example here is so instructive for all of us. For those of you who are teenagers and young people, understand your choice of friends will have an enormous impact on the person you become. It has been said that the sum of the five people that we spend the most time with, that is who we are. I can say it this way, who we are is the sum of the five people we spend the most time with. You just think about that for a moment. That is remarkable. And it's true of us as adults as well. It's one of the reasons why it's so vital for us to immerse ourselves in the Christian community of the church. And to actively pursue and invest in meaningful, Christ-centered friendships in which we're investing in the lives of others and others are investing in our life. The book of Proverbs was written by a by a king who is writing to his son. It's probably written by David's son, Solomon. And he's writing to his son and preparing his son to become a king. And as a result, the book of Proverbs is full of wise instructions regarding friendships and relationships. So the author of Proverbs writes in Proverbs twelve twenty six, One who is righteous is a guide to his neighbor. But the way of the wicked leads them astray. Can you hear the king speaking to his son? Don't go with the wicked. They will lead you astray. The way of the righteous, they will lead you into life. Or Proverbs 13.20 Whoever walks with the wise becomes wise, but the companion of fools will suffer harm. Or Proverbs 24, 6, For by wise guidance you can wage war, and in abundance of counselors there is victory. In other words, the king is saying to his young son over and over and over again, Choose your friends wisely. Walk with the wise, and they will lead you to life. Who are your friends? Who are your companions? Who are your counselors? If we want to live a life of integrity, a a life that impacts others for the glory of God, then we must give special attention to the choice of our friends. Notice here David's criteria for who his friends will not be and who his friends will be. Notice they will not be those who are unfaithful. You see it there in verse 3. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. That word there, fall away, seems to have the sense of deviating, departing, swerving from a path or a way. It is, if you think about it in the context of the larger psalm, it is the opposite of the steadfast love, the steadfast faithfulness that David spoke of in verse 1. This deviation, this departing of the way involves the breaking of agreements, dishonesty, untrustworthiness. And David says here, it will not cling, it will not stick to me. You see, that's one of the dangers of spending time with folks who are dishonest and untrustworthy. Their unfaithfulness starts to cling to us like sticky tar 
or sapped and we can't get it off of us. By association, their dishonest behavior tarnishes our reputation. And if we're not exceedingly careful, we will begin to mimic and participate in their dishonesty. So David says his close companions, his friends, will not be those who are unfaithful. He also says it will not be those who are perverse. Look there in verse 4. A perverse heart shall be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. Richard Phillips, a Christian pastor, writes, quote, American society today is plagued by thought leaders who are determined to upend sound moral standards. We encounter this especially in the media where songs promote adultery and sexual violence and where television shows depict moral perversity as wholesome. The result is a society in which relational pain and broken lives are increasingly the norm, end of quote. Do you see here that David, he determines to distance himself, to remove himself from those who have rejected God's word and allow their minds and their hearts to be distorted and to be twisted by that which is evil. David declares that they will be far from me. I will know nothing of evil. And so listen, my friends, if you think about the music you listen to, if you think about the videos you watch, if you think about the social media you consume as your friends, as your companions, are they leading you in the way that is right and good? Or do they have a perverse and twisted view of God and of the world? Like David, determined to know nothing of evil. So David says his friends will not be those who are unfaithful, those who are perverse. He goes on to say, they will not be those who slander. Look there in verse 5. Whoever slanders his neighbor secretly, I will destroy. Now, if someone wrongly slanders another person, we know that it can ruin that person's reputation. It could cost them their job and their livelihood. In extreme cases, it could result in an innocent person going to jail. David declares here, and we do need to some of this stronger language here that David used, I will destroy, I will cut off, and so forth. We need to recognize that David is speaking here as a king, right, who has been given unique authority, moral authority, political authority, to execute justice. But David declares here that his administration will not tolerate lies. They will not tolerate slander or character assassination. And this is so very important because as we know, this is sometimes how folks who are especially ambitious make their way in politics, by maliciously and dishonestly ruining the reputation of others. David is warning us here, don't surround yourself with people who gossip and who slander. Recently, Congress held hearings on the relationship between the rise of social media and the increase in teenage suicide. The stories that were shared were heartbreaking. It's another example of how words, how lies and gossip and slander can destroy another person's life. As a king, as one who has been given authority to rule and reign, to promote justice, David determines here that he will not allow slander to reside in his court. But rather, he will destroy the one who slanders his neighbor. 
David goes on to say that his friends will not be those who are proud. You see it there in verse 5. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. You know, few things in the Bible are as clear as the truth that God opposes the proud, but He gives grace to the humble. David makes a similar statement in another psalm, Psalm 18, verse 27. For you save a humble people, but the haughty eyes you bring down. And so here David says, whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I will not endure. Or it could be translated, I will not tolerate. Actually, literally, the word here is, I am not able. You could translate it this way. Whoever has a haughty look and an arrogant heart, I am not able. I can't tolerate it. I can't endure it. I can't deal with it. You know, sometimes it seems that our society promotes tolerance as the highest of all virtues. But you know it is evil to tolerate some things. And again, we see here David being in a position of political and moral authority would not tolerate the proudful and arrogant disregard of God's law. Or the prideful, arrogant disregard of the righteous treatment of others. He says, I will not tolerate it, for that would be evil. Notice finally, David says that in terms of who his friends will not be, he says it will not be those who lie in verse 7. No one who practices deceit shall dwell in my house. No one who utters lies shall continue before my eyes. Of course, David's words here are very similar to the words that he spoke in verse 5 when he denounced slanderers. So who will be David's friends? Who will be his companions? Who will be his advisors and counselors? It will not be those who are unfaithful, who are perverse, who slander, who are proud, who are liars. But if these are the people that David will disassociate from, then who will David befriend? Who will he employ in his administration? Who will he spend time with? Well, notice it there in verse 6. He tells us, I will look with favor on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He who walks in the way that is blameless shall minister to me. So David will surround himself with those who are faithful and blameless. And let's be clear here. It's not that they are perfect. And no man or woman is perfect. But they are faithful and they are blameless. Their minds and their hearts are set on the Lord and on His Word and on His ways. And you see, my friends, these are the types of people that we want in our circle of friends, among our employees, leading our church, serving in positions of influence in the community. A man or a woman like Joseph. You remember Joseph in the Old Testament? We're told of his story in the latter part of the book of Genesis. And in Genesis 39, we're told that this man, Joseph, who was faithful, who was hardworking, that Potiphar, his employer, rewarded him. We read in Genesis 39, verses 2 through 6, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man, and he was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. 
So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. And he made him overseer of his house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time that he made him overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And because of him, he had no concern about anything but the food that he ate. We want to surround ourselves with men and women like Joseph. And you know it is the Lord's judgment on a nation when there are few or no Josephs in the land. Men of character. Men of integrity and faithfulness and honesty. Of course, we're in an election year right now. And it's a sad indicator of the moral state of our own nation that increasingly there are fewer and fewer candidates that we can look to and point our children to to say, there's an example of integrity, there's an example of faithfulness, there's an example of moral purity that you should follow. My friends, if we are wise, we would do well to consult Psalm 101 in all of our relationships. First and foremost, to pray for ourselves. That we would be the faithful in the land. That we would walk in the way that is blameless. And then that we would prayerfully seek out such people. To be our friends. That we would prayerfully seek out such people when we're considering a spouse. When we're selecting an elder. When we're hiring an employee. Notice how David here also says he will relate to those who are faithful and blameless. David says here in verse 6, you see it there in the text, that he will look on them with favor, that he will dwell with them, and they will minister to him. Now my friends, that is a plan for spiritual success. That is a plan for a life of blessing, to surround yourself with individuals who are faithful, who are blameless, who love the Lord and love His Word and love His ways, and then to look on them with favor. That is to encourage them, to bless them, to uplift them, to to, um, promote them in any way that you can, and then to dwell with them, to spend time with them, to learn from them, to pray with them. To do life with them. And then to let them minister to you. I mean, you as I have things to learn, ways to grow, insight to gain. You need to be corrected and redirected in different ways. And what we need to do is to recognize that the faithful in the land, they are one of God's primary means to bring about that growth in our lives. And so we are to lean on them. And we are to allow them to lean on us. And we are to allow them to minister to us. In all these ways, we see that David is determined to surround himself with companions of integrity. Third, we see a community of integrity. A community of integrity. So we've seen a commitment to integrity, companions of integrity. And then look at verse 8, a community of integrity. There we read, Morning by morning I will destroy all the wicked in the land, cutting off all the evildoers from the city of the Lord. It seems that it was in the morning that kings would preside over judicial cases. And what we see here is that David is committed to this work. He is committed to morning by morning to the ongoing labor and responsibility of extending steadfast love and upholding justice and denouncing wickedness. 
You can imagine David calling court into session every morning as the people of Israel would come before him with various cases and he would make righteous and just decisions. As Spurgeon again observes, quote, to favor sin is to discourage virtue. Undue leniency to the bad is unkindness to the good, end of quote. And David here, like a good judge, determines that he and his administration will punish the wicked. And they will cut off the evildoers from the land, in particular from the city of the Lord, which is Jerusalem, the holy city. In so doing, David will preside over a community where the righteous are safe, where love and good works are rewarded, and where the vulnerable and the weak are protected. And wouldn't we all love and don't we all long to live in such a land? We see here in our text the commitment to integrity. We see companions of integrity and finally a community of integrity. But you know, one of the most striking and troubling aspects of Psalm 101 is not actually found directly in the text, but is known by comparing this text with David's life. If you know the story of David, you know that David's life and kingship began well. But in his latter years, David failed terribly. By God's grace, he was restored, but the consequences of his failure remained with him the rest of his life. And his failure began in his own heart. And then it spilled over into his family, his home, and then it poisoned his entire kingdom. He committed adultery with a woman named Bathsheba and through a series of deceitful maneuvers, he ensured the death of her faithful husband, whose name was Uriah. Now, how do we make sense of this? How do we reconcile David's pious resolutions in Psalm 101 with the way that David's life played out with his moral failure? In closing, I just want to give you three quick principles, and we're going to hit these very quickly. First, David's commitment to integrity should inspire us. David's commitment to integrity should inspire us. We do well to follow David's example in Psalm 101. That is to commit, to resolve to a life of integrity. Just like I gave you the example of Jonathan Edwards as a young man setting forward 70 resolutions, 70 commitments to follow the Lord. You see, some might protest and suggest that given David's failure, Psalm 101 is irrelevant, it's useless, because David didn't follow through. But that's not true. When David failed to honor his commitment to integrity, it was that very commitment that provided a standard by which David could compare his life, see where he had come up short, be broken and repent and be restored. The commitment, the resolve, the standard was not worthless. In fact, in his failure, David's prior commitment to God and God's law was the means that God used to break David, to lead him to repentance, and thereby to secure his redemption. So David's commitment to integrity should inspire us. 
Second, David's failure to uphold his commitment is a warning to us. David's failure to uphold his commitment is a warning to us. In David's failure, we know that God was gracious, that he was merciful to David. But David's actions had consequences that negatively affected his life and his family and his kingdom. So in this way, we also see that David's failures does not negate the validity of Psalm 101, but rather David's moral failure and the negative repercussions that came from it further confirm that David's commitment to be a man of integrity was right and it was good. And it followed through, it was the path of life for himself and for the people of Israel. So David's failure to uphold his commitment is a warning to us. Third, David's unique role in God's plan of redemption gives us hope. David's unique role in God's plan of redemption gives us hope. We know that David did not entirely live up to the ideals of Psalm 101, and neither will we. Hopefully we will avoid some of the more extreme and tragic transgressions that David committed in the latter part of his life. But even the most faithful and blameless among us will come up short. Listen to the words of Charles Spurgeon. He says, quote, How much do we all need divine keeping? We are no more perfect than David. Nay, we fall short of him in many things. And like him, we shall find the need to write a psalm of penitence very soon after we write our psalm of good resolutions. End of quote. And isn't it true? But here's the good news. God promised David that he would have a son. And this son would live up to the ideals of Psalm 101 perfectly, righteously. And this son would die for David's sin and for all the sins of God's people. And he would truly rule and reign with steadfast love and justice. This is the way the Lord spoke of David's son in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 13. The Lord says, He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. This is how Isaiah the prophet spoke of David's son in Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon His shoulder, and His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of course, this promised son is the Lord Jesus. He is the true and righteous king of Psalm 101. And his kingdom will be forever and the government shall be upon his shoulder and of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, David's kingdom was just a image of Christ's perfect kingdom which is to come. And like David, we can be citizens of that kingdom. If through repentance and faith we turn from our sins and trust in the Lord Jesus, the righteous one who died for our sins, if we do so, we can be forgiven, we can be redeemed, and we can enjoy life in His eternal kingdom forever. Let's pray and ask God to do this work in our lives. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.
Father, we thank you for the truth of Psalm 101. And Lord, even as we read it this morning, we are aware of ways that we have fallen short of the ideals that are set forth here. And we thank you, Lord, for the grace and mercy that you showed David. And we are so grateful for the grace and mercy that you offer to us through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that as we receive that grace and mercy and as we read the words of wisdom that we find here in Psalm 101, that we would commit our lives to a life of integrity, to a life of character, to a life of faithfulness and righteousness. And Lord, by the power of your Spirit, we pray that you would help us to live that out faithfully and consistently. Lord, give us friends and companions that we can surround ourselves with, Brothers and sisters in Christ who love you and love your word that will help us along the way. And Lord, as we do so, we pray that we would have a good influence on others, that we would lead others well, that we would serve others well, that we would build your kingdom and advance your mission in this world for your glory. So Father, take this psalm and apply it to our lives, we ask. And it's through Jesus Christ our Lord we ask it.